Snap Nation, we are really proud and humble because just a few weeks ago, the Third Coast Audio Festival awarded Snap Judgment its highest prize, a gold award for an episode that we crafted as a message to our own hometown of Oakland because we do love so much about this place. The music, the art, the people, the cultures living side by side. But for this episode, we explored a darker truth. We sent a team of Snap Judgment producers to document the stories behind every single homicide that occurred within our city limits for a full year. And what you're about to hear is the story of the artists, the singers, the activists, the teachers, the students, the parents, and the regular folk, our neighbors, lost in 2017. From WNYC Studios, Snap Judgment proudly presents Counted, an Oakland story. This piece does contain explicit language and material. Listener discretion is advised. We begin with Snap Judgment producer Adiza Egan outside a church on the edge of town. It's New Year's Eve 2016. I'm at St. Columba Church in Oakland. Outside, a group of people circle around the lawn. In the garden, there's over 80 slim white wooden crosses. And on each cross, written in marker, is a name, an age, and a date of death. They stand for Oakland's homicide victims this year. Today, each name will be read and each cross pulled up from the ground. First is Carlos. His date of death, January 9th. Every year, there are mothers, fathers, children walking around Oakland with no idea that they'll be a statistic by the end of the year. We want to know who these people were and who they left behind. So beginning January 1st, 2017, we decided to reach out to the families and friends of each homicide victim. One of the first people we met was Daryl Allums. These are all my kids. Every one of these names being read is my kids. I'm their father. I'm their uncle. I'm their street father. They didn't have to die. We found Daryl carrying a little rolling cart outside a church in West Oakland. In his cart, he had three poster boards taped with pictures of kids who were killed in Oakland. I grew up deep east Oakland, 96, Birch Hall of Insane South Park. I love Oakland, man. You know, I, I remember coming up and going to the house parties. We dancing all night and stuff and, and kicking it to like 10, 11 and everybody walking home together in a group. You know what I mean? We stayed kind of close. You know, I remember growing up, Miss Mildred, she worked at the liquor store. They had a little sandwich spot in the back where they made the sandwich, hot link sandwiches and turkey sandwiches. And we love the hot link sandwiches. And when you didn't have all the money, Miss Mildred, you know, she'll look out for you. She'll make you a free sandwich, you know. The hood took care of us. Last year, Daryl lost seven members of his family to violence. Here we go again. 
Bang, bang, boogie, bang, bang, boogie. Not this one. I'm up here. So I decided that um I was gonna try to decrease the homicides in Oakland. I started on 9 on MacArthur with one poster board. It had six pictures on there. And then another poster board I had marked on there. Stop killing my kids. I went to each corner on a stoplight yelling, Stop killing my kids. Stop killing my kids. I'm the man with the purple head on the corner 9 on MacArthur. Stop killing my kids. So when I first started doing this, Man, my street family, my church family, man, I mean, my sandbox friends, even my damn pastor thought I was crazy. I did a video on 94th and Peach Street in less than 24 hours. It, it went viral. A lot of people started following. So Daryl's that guy on the street corner. Some people honk their horns at him. Some people roll up their windows. I'm here. Today, tomorrow... Sunday, I'm here. So my plan for 2017, yeah, I'm trying to decrease the homicides. We got to go under 80, man. Got to. Amen. Clap it up, clap it up, clap it up. I need to hear it. Say stop. Stop. Killing. Killing. Or. Our kids. Stop. 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 Killing. Killing. Or. Our kids. Compared to other cities, Oakland is small. It's like a fifth of the population of Chicago. You can, like, meet anybody in Oakland and be like, what you love about Oakland? Oakland get turned up. Like, they put a smile on your face. Like, we goofy, we fun, we loving. Like, when everything's going good, ain't nobody beefing, ain't nobody funking. You basically got the rich folks living in the hills. Then you got us in the flatlands in East Oakland. And most of the murders, that's where it happened at in deep East Oakland. And for the young people out in East Oakland, the town, it starts feeling like smaller and smaller. I would describe my Oakland hurt. Amani is a young person who lives in deep East Oakland. Man, she already lost a lot of her friends, her family, to violence right here. I went to high school with Amani's mom at Castlemont. My name is Amani Foster. And um, I'm from East Oakland, California. I'm 21 years old. I never had to describe myself before. This is weird. Um, I'm black. (laughs) Unapologetically black. Um, I'm goofy, obviously. Four days into the new year, we lost our first child, a young man named Devante Thomas. Devante was killed just nine blocks from where we're sitting now. He was about the same age as Amani and her brother. They were all close. Amani says he was always looking out for her. And she had just seen Devante at a party. It was like a um like a little block party. And he had gave me some money. He had smoked with me and he told me, like, you know, be careful, stay safe, you know. And he told me to go home too. He was like, You shouldn't even be out here. But I was grown, but he was still like, go home, you know, like I don't want to see you out here, like, go home. I left, too, because I'm like, all right. You know, he wouldn't be telling me this if he didn't know what he was talking about, you know. Don't nobody talk about another murder in these streets. So we still don't know exactly what happened to Devontae after he got killed. 
after Devante was killed, of course Amani was sad, but she was also on edge. She was worried for her brother, Darnell. And then, around midnight on February 11th, Amani got a phone call. My little sister called my phone and she like, Mani. I'm like, what's up? They're saying that Darnell just got shot like on 65th. I just instantly told my auntie like, we got to go to 65th now. So my cousin, she's asking me like, what's going on? What's going on? I don't want to say, oh, my brother's just got shot because I feel like it's going to make everything worse, you know, like just for him. Like, you feel me? I feel like he going to feel it like, damn, ain't nobody got no hope for me. Everybody started panicking or whatever. So we pushing it to the 60s, but I'm, I'm socking my auntie car windows and hella shit. Like I'm tripping up in there because I'm like, they not driving fast enough. And my little sister keep calling me. I'm ignoring her phone calls because it's like, I don't want to hear the wrong thing. And lo and behold, I answered the phone and she like, where you at? Because they're saying like he's unconscious. So we pull up, not even to the scene. We pull up like what, two blocks, like away. And I just bounced out the car. I had on some red stilettos. And I must have slipped off them shoes so fast. And I slipped my Crocs on. And I start running down the street in my Crocs. Like, I'm like, I got to get down there. Like, I got to get down there to see him. Like, if anything, like, I have to be the one. And I ran out of my Crocs. And when I get to the scene, I see the person who was there with my brother on the ground crying. And then I see, like, a lot of police officers. And then I see, like, yellow tape. So I'm like, fuck, bro. And I'm just like, I, I ran up to the police, and I'm like, where's my brother? And they're, they're got fucking smirks on their face and laughing at me. I feel like they didn't care. It's an anxiety kind of feeling. Like, it's like a feeling that runs through your body to where it's like your nerves, even your nerves are confused, you know? And that's why your blood rushes like that, because it's like, I'm calm, but I'm, I'm amped in the same note, like a bottle of soda. I was just talking to myself like, I can't believe that my brother is really dead. I just broke down on my knees and I was telling God I was sorry and I was telling my brother I was sorry in the same note because it's like, I felt like I could have held you you know, and let you know, like, at least if you're going to go, you see somebody that you feel comfortable with. I delivered him October 30th, 1994. Never forget the day that we came home that evening, day before Halloween, and I'm walking down the steps with stitches, you know, from delivering and a, a little baby in this in the carrier. Darnell was short for a very long time. He was so afraid that um, that he wouldn't get tall and grow. Uh, he would come in and ask, can you measure me? Measure me. This is every day. And I'm like, we would tell him, you can't measure yourself every day. You're going to still be the same height, you know. We worked with him as much as we could. We kept him in church. But the older he got and the company that he had, he he geared to what was more attractive and appealing, which were the 
kids who got to do whatever they wanted to. Darnell actually grew up to be pretty tall. His family said he was really into the way he looked. He wanted to be famous. He would make funny videos on Instagram and send memes to all his family members. And in his spare time, he would write. He started writing hooks for for songs and music. It sounded really good. So he started calling himself Oakland's Hook Man. Even so, he made plans with Imani to leave Oakland. It started to affect them, the things that were happening around them, especially when they started to lose friends, you know, friends that were shot at parties and killed. Darnell was the fifth homicide of Oakland, California this year. Darnell was shot over 10 times. And the man who police charged with his murder, who witnesses say was responsible for the shooting, was not a stranger. He was really good friends with Darnell. He called him his brother. I never felt safe in Oakland. Like, this is East Oakland. You could never get too comfortable out here because anything can happen at any point in time. After he was killed, Darnell's mom wanted to leave Oakland. She'd only been living in her apartment for a few years. She had kids to take care of. She really wasn't prepared to move, but she just had to leave. Adrian went through all these other towns, but the landlord didn't want to rent to a woman with three kids from Oakland on Section 8. The thing is, these nearby towns, like Antioch and Pittsburgh, that's where everybody started going when Oakland rent prices started going up. At first, it was cool, but then the violence started following. And now landlords, they just don't own rent from nobody from Oakland. So Adrian ended up back in deep East Oakland. She still doesn't feel safe. She's still paranoid. So she keeps her location of her new apartment a secret. We do peep out the windows a little bit here and there. I'm not that far from where I was living. Um, it's, I know the sirens are going off right now, but like, like generally it's like a lot more quiet here on the street right here where I live. Last night we were in here, the, the police were shooting all up and down here. You know, my son, he came behind me and stood there and he was like, Mom, close the window. I hope our doors are locked. What's going on? He was really scared. You know, that bothers me. For Darnell's birthday, Adrian invited a few close friends and family members to her apartment, and they had a party. Real fast, let's say happy birthday. Okay, happy birthday. We miss you, D. We love you. Um, mommy gonna always love you and mourn you. All every day of my life. It ain't gonna don't nothing stop. We gonna celebrate you forever, every day. Your big 23rd. I know if he was here right now, he'd think this was the biggest thing on earth right now. <laughs> 23 ain't nothing but still a baby. Thank you everybody for coming. You know, it's amazing. You 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 see them born, you raise them, you help raise them, and then uh, you know. Amani was there. 
she got t-shirts made with his Instagram name on them. The Real Stunner. When our friend Muffin died, it was Muffin World, you know, when my best friend Ed died, it's Ed World, Skeet World, you know, Devante World, you know. Um, I can name so many more, you know, but it's just like, that's just something that we do just to like up up the spirit, like, hey, like, you know, like he's still here, like son of world, like, you know, like, yeah. I miss you, kid. I love you. I love you, baby. Can we, can we sing Stunner World? Who? Stunner World. You want to say Stunner World? Go. Stunner World. Go. Hey. Stunner World. Stunner World. listen to Snap Judgment, Counted, an Oakland story. And I want to let you know that this story, we spent over a year talking to so many people that we knew we had to create a permanent home for what they told us. We started a website called oaklandstory.org. And when you go to oaklandstory.org, you're going to see photos, you're be able to listen to stories and understand the impact these people continue to have on Oakland and the folk who live here. Check it out. Now, if you think a violent fate only touches one type of person, then you have to think again. When Counted, an Oakland story continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Counted, an Oakland story. For one year, we sent a team of SNAP producers to uncover stories behind the 2017 homicide victims in Oakland. And we met Daryl Allums, who's out on the streets working to keep the total murder number under 80 people slain. Less than a mile from where Darnell was shot at, his mom, Adrian, stood on the streets with me, holding a giant poster board with his picture. Daryl leads the group in prayer. Now today, Lord, we come to move for you, Lord, because these are our children, your children getting killed out here in these streets, Lord. What do I say to people that say protesting, holding up signs, don't do shit? We got to be on our kids every damn day. That's your friend. We got to break this cycle. What do you mean by that? In some ways, there's no typical homicide victims in Oakland. We got old people, young people, black, white, Asian, men and women. But to be honest with you, the majority of victims, the young black men from East Oakland, they dying from revenge killings. So can you break this down? How do revenge killings fit into this cycle? A lot of murders in Oakland go unsolved. And then you got the revenge part. When the other killer get killed, and then the next killer get killed, and then the next killer get killed, and it's like they're wiping each other out. And then the ones that's in jail, 
they not getting charged because of the runaround of we need a witness. We need somebody to ID him. Then we need to take the stand. So then once you do tell him this person stuff, then you got to go back to the same neighborhood and now they're going to call you a snitch. And then his friends and his might come light your house up just because they know you went down to that courthouse. I grew up seeing this shit all the damn time. Bullet for bullet, blood for blood, revenge. So how do you stop the cycle? Uh, Miss Mildred, she worked at the liquor store at Leeds Market when I came up. And, 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 and when I was in the streets, she see me acting stupid. She sucked me upside my head and did tell my mama. You know, we all got to be like Miss Mildred. Basically, you want to stop revenge killings by asking people to be accountable for each other. Got to go back to being accountable for each other. So I got this nephew, right? And I'm trying to help him. His father got knocked down in the streets back in the day. He never had a dad. He traumatized from homicide. Now he out in these streets playing with these guns. He robbing people with his friends. I want the whole neighborhood to watch out for him. Is that how we're going to get under 80? I hope so. By mid-March, we'd lost 12 people. Valley Bro Hill was 45 years old. He liked to quote scripture and listen to Anita Baker. Justin Sessions. He was the youngest of three, and he wanted to be an environmental engineer. Philip Philo. Beaten to death in a park. And then... March 11th. Salton Bay. Sultan's mom threw a celebration of life for him at the Lake Merritt Boathouse. I met Sultan at Emeryville Recreational Center when I was about around probably eight years old. He had little dreads, like twisties. I, I don't know if they was dreads or twisties. A whole bunch of Sultan's friends were there, some dressed up and some with lanyards around their necks with pictures of Sultan. Oh, it's a picture of my dude Sultan. It says, Ball in Peace, Rocky. You feel me? You know, just a nice picture of him. So his name is Rocky. Yeah, Rocky. He got a lot of nicknames. Rocky, Saltwater, Saltwater the Money Man. You feel me? <laughs> you feel me? Just salt, you know, Salty F Mac. You know, he got a lot of names. <laughs> yeah, you know, close friend. On Saturday, March 11th, 2017, 18-year-old Sultan Bay wanted to go hang out with some friends. This was his last night out before finals. So his mom, who's known around Oakland as Chef Mimi, cooked salmon, Brussels sprouts, and truffle mac and cheese. Then, Sultan's friend came to pick him up. Around 8 p.m., he was reclining in the passenger seat of his friend's parked car. A bullet came in through the rear window and hit him in the back of his head. He was the 13th homicide of the year. We just had dinner, like 30 minutes before, Sultan was a go-getter. Like, he 
was getting ready to graduate from high school. He was set to try to attend um, Clark University. Chef Mimi's family owns all kinds of property in the East Bay. They even have a McDonald's franchise. And she hosts a reality show called Bringing It to the Table. It's sort of like a black top chef. Chef Mimi and her son Sultan, they didn't live in East Oakland like Devante and Darnell. They're middle class. She's a social worker and an entrepreneur. Sultan was headed to college. We kept hearing people around Oakland, everyone from city council members to reporters say, Sultan was a good kid, and Sultan wasn't doing anything wrong. And we realized people were saying, he didn't deserve to die. The subtext was that the others had it coming. All the moms, the first thing they say, man, my boy is a good boy. They want to make sure that we grieve with them instead of writing them off. We heard the same thing from Chef Mimi that we heard from Adrian. Parts of her wants to leave Oakland so her youngest son won't have to live in fear. A lot of people I know have moved their son, their kids away. Arizona, Texas, and and that's a, that's really, really sad. You know, that, that African-American boys are such at high risk living in Oakland. They don't have to be doing anything, no nothing on the line, nothing. Just get shot for no reason. And I have another black male child to raise. In this year of reporting, we saw all these people who come home from their day jobs and go back out to work in neighborhoods across Oakland. Teachers are knocking on the doors of absent students. Moms teaching kids in schoolyards how to treat bullet wounds. Teams of violence interrupters are walking the streets, talking down would-be murderers. And Daryl is reaching out to as many families of homicide victims as he can. As the spring got hotter, more and more people got killed. Leland Hodge, 57 years old. Javon Wilson, 39 years old. Then on March 29th, a young man was killed outside of my church in East Oakland. His name was Keith Lawrence, and he was 17 years old, a student at Skyline High School. Keith was shot in a parked car around 10 p.m. at night. I remember trying to reach out to the family to see if they needed any support. And meanwhile, I was getting blown up by my sister. She kept calling my phone, calling my phone. And I finally answered, and when I did answer, she was crying, she was hysterical, she was going crazy. And basically what she was explaining to me, that my nephew that I've been speaking about, well, he was a young man that killed his friend, Keith Lawrence. Daryl's nephew, the one who he had been mentoring since he was born, shot and killed his friend, Keith Lawrence. He was homicide number 17. This is what Daryl's nephew told him. So the story is told that you have four young men smoking weed, getting high. They just committed a robbery not too long ago, and they were celebrating, listening to music, 
laughing, and playing with guns. Accidentally, the gun went off and killed this young man. Oh, man, I, I felt so hurt, man. I felt like I let my nephew down because um, this had happened. And all the times, all the conversations and talks that I had with him, it didn't click. So I hung up the phone, and I sat there rocking, analyzing the whole situation, the options he had. He had been on a run for two weeks. What's his options? He got to turn himself in. Don't nobody want to go to jail. And for you to have to turn your own flesh and blood in, it hurt. One of the hardest things I ever did in life. So it made you want to turn him in? Why I turned him in, some people might say I ruined his life, but I felt I saved his life. You got an African-American little boy, 18 years old, just turned 18. Armed and dangerous. Hell yeah, the police gonna kill him. He just killed somebody. He's a suspect on the run. My perspective, the only way to win was to turn him in. Now my nephew looking at facing from anything from five to 10 years. So we met Keith Lawrence's mom outside the courthouse at your nephew's arraignment, and she didn't believe it was an accident. She said, how, how could someone pull the trigger on my son's head and say that it was an accident? And she was shaking, and she was crying, and she was really upset. She a mom. That's how she feel. She's hurt because her son got killed. Now we got an accident that's going to be a family fucking war. What, what do you mean by family war? Is it in your family or is it between families? The ones that lost a child feels like it's the mom and the family fault that that young man pulled the trigger. The future outcome, what I, what, I, what I pray for is that it do not become a war. Because right now, it's, you know, got people going past the house, somebody going to shoot it up, stuff like that. So... It could really become a war because my sister and her folks, they're not like punks. Though she got folks too. A lot of my family and friends, you know, they want to retaliate. It's probably once a week I'm talking to one of them to try to calm them down. You're listening to Snap Judgments Counted, an open story. Also listen to stories that you can't hear anywhere else. We've got a map of Oakland where you can find hand-drawn illustrations of those who have lost their lives. It's all at oaklandstory.org. Now when Snap returns, he's already lost so much. Can he stop it from happening to someone else? When Counted, an open story continues. Stay tuned. From WNYC, welcome back to Counted, an Oakland story. My name is Glenn Washington, and in 2017, 
a team of SNAP producers fanned across the city to find the stories behind the murder victims. Along with countless others, we met Daryl Allums, who works desperately trying to ensure Oakland's homicide rate does not surpass 80 victims. By the end of spring, 32 people had been killed in Oakland, five more than this time last year. May 8th, Demrick Bean, stabbed to death outside a recycling center. June 2nd, Kenya Levias and Dennis Johnson, double homicide. Dennis was my sandbox friend, brother. In the summertime, it's usually when homicides spike up. So I've learned over the years, I got to do double time in these streets. July 17th, Anthony Owens. And then... On August 9th, Dave DePorris, a 40-year-old folk singer, was sitting outside the Hawk and Pony coffee shop in North Oakland. It's a vehicle versus pedestrian, uh, with the victim bleeding from the head. I was in the jungles of Sri Lanka, and I went there to look for leopards. I got up at 6 in the morning, and I turned my phone on, and I saw that about every two or three minutes, there was a phone call coming in, either from my ex-wife or from my stepdaughter, and I knew there was something terribly wrong that had happened. This is Dave DePorce's father, Gene. And I called and said, what's going on? It was my ex-wife, and there was a long pause, and she said, Gene... Our son is dead. And that's how I learned about David. My son died at 40. Gene felt the same way as a lot of the other parents who we talked to. His son's murder upended the natural order of things. When children die before their parents, it's so sudden, nobody gets to say goodbye. Now Gene was looking back at his son's life, and trying to figure out who he really was. He literally, he, he sang before he talked. He would bang out music on his crib. Dave used to tell his parents that he was wired differently from most people. Well, I would turn to him, you know, you're 30 now. What are you going to do? You're 35. When are you going to get a corporate job? What about having money to be able to date? What about having a career? If he played a venue and he got paid, that was nice. If he played a venue and didn't get paid, that was nice. All of this was stuff that put me as a dad on tilt. I was terrified. When Gene got to Oakland two days after Dave died, he had no idea what to expect. He only knew that his son came to Oakland to make music. By the time I got to Oakland, I knew that he was sitting in a sidewalk cafe working on his music on his laptop, and someone grabbed the laptop, ran to a waiting getaway car, and my son ran after the car to try to get the laptop back because it had his music on it. It had all the things he was working on on it, and somehow was holding onto the guy in the car and they drove for over 200 yards, banging him against other cars until 
he slipped out and was run over by their car and killed. It was the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, in a nice area of Oakland, and that's where my son was killed. When I arrived there, the first thing that happened, a phalanx of David's friends, none of whom I knew existed, befriended and took all of us over and put us up at their houses. I, I realized that my son had a much larger following than I had expected, and they were the people who started telling me all about David and all the things they knew about him. I feel that I've gotten a PhD in my son, which started not at base zero, but pretty darn close to it. Some of Dave's friends held a vigil in his honor. They also organized a peace walk with musicians, poets, and artists. This woman who lived on the street where he died, which was Rich Street, she comes up to me and gave me a big hello, and I hugged her. And after she left, there I was, and I looked at the memorial book that was there, and she wrote something in it. I heard your voice call out for help. I heard the SUV screech away. I heard the partly This woman saw my son run over and ran in the house and got a blanket and came out to join the policewoman and wrapped my son's feet in the blanket as he passed away. I saw your torn clothes and held your feet. I saw you on your back, looking up at the old tree in the sky. I learned that so much of what I thought I knew about my son was wrong. Parents, when they view their kids, they're always viewing them with an eye towards themselves. When I got to Oakland, I was so impressed with what I've seen with the people, what I've learned about the town. I'm, I'm proud of his humanity and how he was able to build his life around who he wanted to be as a human being. I am the proudest dad in the whole world right now. By mid-September, 46 people had been killed. At least half were black. 43 were men. Three women. 13 were under the age of 25. And at least two, we found out, were homeless. This is a new thing we got to deal with, the homeless encampments. It didn't used to be like this. Why? In Oakland, renting with a can't afford rent. A lot of people lost their Section 8. And when rent go up, no Section 8. Next step is the tents. Even the motel rooms, they're expensive. There are 10 cities all over Oakland. It's like a mini village, a mini community, where a lot of people work together, um, sharing food and hygiene and clothes. Then you got a bad side where some people use it to sell drugs, to hide from the police, all kinds of people living in them. 
September 14th, Jason Coleman. Jason lived in a homeless encampment in North Oakland. Here, a handful of RVs are parked under an overpass. Old couch cushions, clothes, and empty bottles are scattered over the sidewalk where people gather. This was Jason's home. Yeah, oh yeah, we were a community, shoot. This is Jason's friend, Linda. She lives in the encampment in an RV with her dog. One time he came from Pack and Save, and they had made a mistake on his EBT card and gave him $100 more food stamps. He only was supposed to get like $40 or some food stamps. So he bought a bunch of hot dogs and hamburgers and coal. And it just so happens that it, I think, what was that holiday? Labor Day weekend because, yeah. And we were all real hungry, but none of the churches or the food people were coming because they were with their families, you know. He came riding on that little bike with a damn cart on the back. A few days later, someone stole that bike from Jason. Jason came out of the man cave and, and just looked at me like, like, get my bike. Yeah, Suzanne Newton, uh, I've been homeless my whole life. <laughs> but I just went straight on running at the guy, ran straight at him, and he got scared, went for his gun, pointed it right at him, and just shot him. Uh, Jason just, you know, grabbed the bullet hole, and I was hoping it was a blank. But then he pulled his hand off of his off his body, and and, uh, and he was bleeding. So he ran. He ran to the cave, and and uh, I grabbed him by the. I went. I ran inside the RV and grabbed a grabbed a tampon, and made him lay down and put a tampon in the bullet hole, and uh, and started CPR. So I was just telling him to hold on, and he was telling me he you know he couldn't breathe, he couldn't breathe. And he, and he gasped for air one more time. You can still see Jason's bloody handprints on the wall of the freeway where he lived. And Jason actually didn't live on the streets. He lived inside them. Inside the hollow cement pillars that hold up the off-ramp, Jason had made a room for himself. He had even wired cable and internet inside. <laughs> man cave, man cave. There was, you know, there was a couch in there, you know, there's, he had a mini, mini fridge, you know, he's got a water container, he's got, you know, he had a, um, a projector. There's a small shrine in a corner of the underpass where people have placed little things to remember Jason. So I just, I put the G.I. Joe there and then I, there's all the Mardi Gras beads and the hearts that are, um, Oh, did Hanging. you do that? Yeah, yeah, I put those there. And, the, and I, I wrote up there I, that I love him like a brother, you know. Um, and that's how our relationship was very brother-sister, you know. But I, I really did have a really big crush on Jason. It's October. Daryl still talks to his nephew in jail, the one he turned in for the murder of Keith Lawrence. He's hanging in there. It's hard. Taking care of my own kids. Or the moms that can't sleep, that can't eat. 
They just want me to pray with them because they kid and got killed in the streets. Yeah. Do you want to give up sometimes? A lot. <clears throat> Last week, someone stole my car. had my wheelchair in it, my medication. Man, but the hardest thing was they stole my picture boards of my kids. My kids had lost their life to violence. So I had to redo the poster board over buy a new poster, reprint pictures. It took me back to the killings of them. Like, I, like I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It really messed me up. I have lupus. I land in the damn hospital like twice a month and they telling me to take it easy. I can't. Got lives to say. On October the 10th, there was another homicide, the youngest homicide of Oakland. Malcolm is live now in the newsroom, and Rob, you learned that the boy had just finished having dinner with his family when he was shot. Well, that's right, Julie. He had also gone to church that night and also... Anibal Ramirez was sitting in Walnut Plaza. Four days before, there was a ribbon-cutting ceremony there. The neighbors were excited that this notoriously dangerous corner was getting a facelift. There were new palm trees, string lights, and game tables. A city councilwoman called it a nice place to just escape. That night, the boy's father, Gilberto Vasquez, answered a knock on the door. In that moment, I went and grabbed a sweater, and I said, let's go, let's see what happened. What we thought was that maybe he was in jail. They had picked him up off the street. But the police told him, his 13-year-old son, Anibal, was shot dead on a park bench down the street. At first, Gilberto didn't believe it. But when they showed me that photo with the gunshots, that's the moment. In that moment, I didn't have words. My wife started crying. The truth is, I was praying. Anibal's family had moved to Oakland from Guatemala. I loved him so much. My son, when he got here, everything started out okay. He went to school, he had vacation, and over those vacations was when he started to change. We'd ask him what was going on, and sometimes he'd get mad at us. Anibal's school, Frick Impact Academy, is about half a mile from where he was shot. Ruby D ties the principal here. What are you doing? Where's your pass? When kids don't show up for class, Principal Ruby goes looking for them. One time, she found Anibal skipping school. And um, we just, you know, I saw him walking down the street and just get back in the car. Let's go. We're going back to school. The day after Anibal was murdered, Principal Ruby called an assembly. I did cry in front of my students um, just when I was explaining to them that I love them and we're a family and we're going to get through this together. Um, when you work in East Oakland, there is a lot of trauma that is happening on a daily basis and our kids are coming to school with all of that. He just he had a, He has a wonderful family and they came here with the intentions of doing better and I can't imagine you know because you want you just want to keep 
kid safe. He's just a kid. And if you don't remember that, then it's easy to say, oh, you know, I've heard he shouldn't have been outside, or he should have, and it's, it doesn't make it right. He's just a kid. I found about Annabelle's death. We had got together, went to the family house. We needed a translator, um, we, and we discussed a fundraiser for him. So we went back to where he's killed at on seminary off of Foothill, and um, we invited some of the moms or some that lost their kids to violence. His parents didn't have no money for the funeral, or to send the little boy's body back to Guatemala. Um, we raised thirty-seven hundred dollars to help send his body back to Guatemala. And I always keep extra blank posters, glue sticks, paper letters. You know, to make new ones. We about to make a sign for this young man before his family get here. Here go the scissors. I made. I print some pictures out. Every time I do a poster board, it saddens me. My youngest son is 13, and I worry about him in the streets. I don't want to ever get that phone call. We don't have an end. What could we use for an end? I know at the beginning of the year you said you had a personal goal to keep the murder rate under 80 this year. It's the end of November. How are we looking compared to last year at this time? Last year we had 72 homicides around this year. Now we got 65. Full court press. It's an amazing feeling. I feel like this year we're going to save a lot of lives. But then December came, and all hell broke loose. All across the city, people were shot to death every few days. In one awful week in particular, seven people were murdered. And then, two days before Christmas... There was a homicide that made a lot of headlines, and it was particularly rough on Daryl. The victim was Dominic Johnson, and he was known in Oakland as an activist. He was gunned down outside the community center he helped to build. His family waited until after Christmas to tell his seven-year-old daughter. So we're, we're on Grand, we're on Grand and Brush. We are here today uh, for a community, for a village, a village healing right now. This is a village healing circle where we're cleaning up our community. There's a lot of trash out here. We got the tents behind us over here. I had mad respect for Dom. He was out there trying to fight for justice for people that got killed that he never even met. He was killed coming out to Colombo Center, the place where he built a community garden at. He helped clean up the neighborhood. He helped even put some paint on that building with the red, the black, and the green. Do you see yourself in Dom? I see myself a lot in Dom, but younger. See, when I was 30 years old, I wasn't doing what Dom was doing. 
You know what I'm saying? I was pushing crack, getting money. So how did it make you feel to see a 30-year-old knocked down doing something like that? Pissed me the hell off. And that's just one of those things right there, how they say, do black lives really matter? We yelling and screaming, though, but damn, do it really matter? All family to the side, please. To my right-hand side, please. All family. Daryl emceed the funeral. He made some noise in the community. So this is the Dom movement. After the funeral, everyone got in their cars and drove to the reception. It wasn't held in a funeral home or someone's house. They went back to the spot where Dom was killed. Daryl organized a neighborhood cleanup. Friends unloaded chicken and platters of cookies and soda from their cars. People in the homeless encampment across the street lent their brooms. It felt like the whole neighborhood was out there, sweeping up clothes mixed with empty bottles and leaves. Uh, I moved here about 10 years ago. I've been, Here's Dom's been friend from Colombo, Adriana Brown. Like, uh, Dom was somebody who I, who I gravitated towards because I, I felt like his realness matched my realness. It was, Dom was like, like a big brother that I never had. Time world, baby. We're cleaning up because this is what Dominique did. He cleaned up the community, he fought for the community, and he took care of the community. So honor Dom, we out here doing that for the community today, for our village. This is the Dom movement. This is his work. Gotta continue his work. Continue his work, baby. I'm at St. Columba Catholic Church. It's December 31st, 2017. I'm here again. The first death of uh, 2017, Devante, January 4th. The final number for 2017 is 77. Darnell, February 11th. The number was under 80. It felt like an accomplishment, but still, nothing Daryl could be happy about. When the ceremony ends, Daryl leaves with Dominic's cross over his shoulder. A couple of hours after I left the um, cross ceremony, I go into the store um, in Oakland, and um, as I'm coming out, all you heard was bop, 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 So we got down on the ground, got back into the store. I peekaboo out, and no more gunshots. I got, got to my car, and I got up out of there. Was they shooting at me? I don't know. But the gunshots came. But I don't mean that I'm scared. I can't stop the work. The movement gotta keep going. If I get knocked down, somebody gotta pick the torch up right behind me and keep it going. And we already got somebody in line for that.
been listening to Counted, an Oakland story. We originally aired this piece earlier in the year, but know this, the work of Daryl Allums and so many others fighting to bring the number of murders down continues. We recently met up with Daryl to talk about what's been happening so far this year. We're back in the studio again. We're nearing the end of 2018. What What's different from last year? The numbers is up, meaning that um, we have more homicides than we had in the last two years right now in Oakland. What do you think's changed? Why do you think the numbers are up? Everybody hungry because we ain't got nothing. We got crumbs. Are there any names that stuck out for you um, seeing them on the cross this year? Yeah, most definitely. Number one, my goddaughter, Neil Wilson. She was killed by a white man. Yeah, she was stabbed to death on a BART. And unfortunately, her funeral was on my birthday. Hmm. That shocked the world, you know, for someone to take her life like that. She wanted to save lives, man. She wanted to be an EMT. You know what I mean? And how about your nephew? How's he doing? <sighs> he got his time. The judge understood. He only got five years. Key family was disappointed, was mad. My family was um, a little upset, too, because he going to be away for a little while. Let's talk about healing for a second. What do you do to heal? What do you do to take care of yourself? Cry, talk, laugh, sing, dance. Deceive my people smile. So that's that's my fun. That's my ah. Big thanks to Daryl Allums for that update. Daryl, we appreciate you. And love as well to every single person mentioned in this story and their families. Big, big love. And thanks to Amani Foster, Adrian and Hazel Harry, Linda, Amina Chef Mimi Robinson, the DePores family, Susan Trout, Gilberto Vasquez, and Suzanne Newton. Our co-host of Counted and Oakland Story, Ardiza Egan and Daryl Allums. Senior producer Anna Sussman. The story concept was by Jonathan Jones. Production by Adiza Egan, Anna Sussman, Shayna Sheely, Jonathan Jones, Pat Masidi Miller, Nancy Lopez, Jasmine Aguilera, Eliza Smith, and Pendarvis Harshaw. Additional production by Taylor Ducat and Liz Mack. Photography by Sinkyu Mubadik. Special thanks to Fantastic Negrito. Original music by Pat Masidi Miller, Leon Morimoto, and Renzo Gorio. To hear more of the music of David DePoris, Check out DaveDeporis.com. Snap Judgment is executive produced by Mark Ristich and myself. Be sure to visit our website, OaklandStory.org, to find amazing photos and interviews with the victim families and community organizers from across the city. And though this story occurred in our hometown of Oakland, California, this is WNYC. WNYC.